May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. We recently had a notable, notable day in terms of the progress of a year. Uh, the winter solstice recently passed. I think, I think that was on Monday. And the winter solstice is, is a notable day in the course of a year because it is the day of the year that has the least sunlight, the shortest day, or the longest night, the, the darkest evening of the year, as the poet Robert Frost described it. And so we go through this yearly pattern of growing light, increasing light, until we get to the summer solstice, and then decreasing light, less and less light, shorter days until we get to the winter solstice. And the lack of light at this time of year, as we see all around us, has important consequences. It's not simply that the days are shorter. We, it can have effects on people psychologically. There is a syndrome known as seasonal affective disorder. People can experience a state of depression around this time of year because there's just so little sunlight. Sunlight is not, not, doesn't just light things up. It's important to the functioning of our minds. And it can make our minds function in a way that we feel more depressed at this time of year. This time of year can actually be a more dangerous type of year in terms of crime because the more darkness there is, the longer the night is, the more opportunity there is for people to commit crime. Most crimes are committed at night. Uh, it can even have effects not just on our psychological health, but on our physical health. The lack of sunlight and uh, can lead to a lack of vitamin D in the body, a, light that are, a vitamin that our body synthesizes from sunlight, and uh, which is essential to the functioning of our, of our immune system. And so people get often sick this time of year because of the lack of sunlight and because of their vitamin D deficiencies. So light has a huge impact on our lives, the, the presence of it or the absence of it. And light and darkness is a really key metaphor that John is working with here in this epistle. Now, uh, this epistle, we call it an epistle, but in some ways, this, this first epistle of John, and you're welcome to follow along in the Pew Bible if you wish. Um, I think, Jesse, when we were looking at that earlier, was it like 1714 in the Pew Bible, 1712, something like that was the page number. I can't remember exactly. But feel free to turn there if you, if you wish. Um, this epistle of John's is, does not really have the structure of an epistle. Most epistles, these are just, that's just a fancy word for a letter. The, uh, most of the epistles begin with some kind of greeting, usually a claim of authorship. This epistle was written by so-and-so to such-and-such of a church. We don't have any of that here. We don't have any introduction of John as the author, and we don't have a sense from the beginning of this epistle necessarily who, who the audience is which is one of the reasons why it's described as a general epistle. It's not written to any particular church or to any particular individual or believer. It's just a general epistle. And probably writings like this would have circulated throughout many churches during the time of the first century church. Um, and even though we don't have a clear attribution of authorship in these first verses, I think 
there's pretty universal agreement that this looks to be an epistle of John's. It's, it's in his style. It uses his vocabulary. It has many resonances with the gospel that he wrote. I don't think there's any con- point of controversy on that, that John is the author of this epistle. So a little bit of an odd structure, but I'm going to basically take this first chapter here in three sections. And that first section, I'm going to argue, is the preparation for the message that John wants to give. So he's making some general remarks about the kind of message that he's trying to deliver in this epistle. And so that's verses 1 through 4. He's sort of setting up the message he wants to give. And then I want to argue that verse 5 is really the hinge on which this entire passage turns. That's the, that's the heart of the message he wants to deliver us today, is what, what is said in verse 5. And as we'll see, kind of an interesting message to have at the center of, of this passage. And then the remaining verses of this chapter, so 6 through 10, deal with the consequences of that message. If, if the message in verse 5 is true, what consequences does that have for us in the way that we conduct ourselves and live our lives? So taking that first division first then in verses 1 through 4, what kind of message is John delivering? What kind of religion is John representing here? One thing to notice is that the religion and the message that John is presenting is insistently one that relates to the senses. Look at all the references in these first few verses to the senses. We have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon, and most radically, most controversially, we have handled, we have actually put our hands on this. Plato or if you were to look at many of the ancient Greek philosophers, particularly Plato, Plato might be okay with saying that we can see the truth. There's a lot of references to seeing the truth in Plato. He might be on board with that. When you say something like seeing with our eyes, that might make him a little bit antsy. He's more comfortable with sight as a metaphor, maybe, than as literal sight. But when you get to things like handling with our hands we've handled the truth with our physical hands all of ancient philosophy would say no impossible that cannot be the truth is not something that can be embodied in gross physical matter and the people who john is responding to in this epistle are some of the early forms of what we call gnosticism These were people that denied the goodness of physical matter. For them, God was purely unphysical, and the real God wouldn't have created a physical world at all. To the extent that the world is physical, some kind of mistake has happened. Some sort of evil being has interposed himself and created this world of matter. The true true goodness of the world is unphysical, immaterial it's spiritual and so this idea of gnosticism is something that was present from the earliest days of the church you can see it um, instances of it in the apostles responding to it in the first century and it was something that was sort of dogged the church for centuries thereafter this idea that matter is somehow evil 
But St. John here is insistent on the fact that the religion that he is preaching is bound up with physical matter. And of course, this time of year, when we're celebrating the Christmas season, is a perfect time to remember and remark on that fact. The fact that we are a part of a religion that says God came to us in the flesh as a human being in physical matter. So, the message that John is giving is that I'm representing a religion of the senses and a physical matter. He also is insistent on the fact that he is representing a religion that has to do with fellowship with God. The, the word for fellowship here in the Greek is koinonia, and it means um, participation in something. It means having something in common with something. It means sharing with something. So when he says that the message that he's given is based on fellowship, he's meaning that the religion that we're talking about here, the religion of Christianity, is something that's bound up with relationship. Um, I'm not going to go so far as to repeat the, uh, the uh, cliche that it's, a, it's not a religion, it's a relationship, but it is a religion involved with relationship. Relationship matters here. Christianity is not simply a set of abstract ideas. We um, have definitely seen people that have tried to turn Christianity into that. There was a, 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 a movement in the 18th century known as deism that tried to reduce Christianity and religion in general to just a set of abstract philosophical principles. But that's not sufficient for the message that St. John is giving. This is not just a series of almost like mathematical truths that can be articulated in this, into this vacuum. The religion that we're talking about here means having a relationship in a personal way with another person. And this is not just a relationship between us and God either. This is a relationship that God has within himself. It says here that this uh, fellowship is fellowship with the Father. Jesus... God the Son has always had fellowship with the Father. And think about what that means. It means that God is not just a singularity. God is a trinity. And because he exists both in unity and in multiplicity, he's capable of being relationship in his very being. The God of Islam is not capable of that. The God of Islam is a pure singularity. And before he created things to have a relationship with, he didn't have a relationship with anything. He was just existing by himself in pure void, if you like. But the triune God, the God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, whom we worship, has always existed as a relationship between the three persons. Relationship is at the heart of who he is as a God. And that fellowship, that relationship, is reflected in our religion and in the message that John has to give us. And lastly, John wants to underscore the fact that the message he's giving is one of joy. In verse 4, he says, And these things write we un write we unto you that your joy may be full. 
Christianity is not a dour or pessimistic religion. It's not a religion that involves going around with a long face all the time, being sad and upset about things. Do we grieve at things? Do, are we upset at things? Of course. But at the heart of the message of our religion is one of joy. I recently had a situation, a student in my class, where um, I, had, I thought he had not turned in a couple of assignments to me. And because of that and some various grades that he was dealing with, he was looking at possibly having a failing grade for the entire year. And um, it turned out that he had turned in those two assignments. I was mistaken. And adding those back into his grade, he ended up having a passing grade instead of a failing grade for the year. And he was absolutely overjoyed to get that news, that he, was, he wasn't going to be failing after all, he was going to be passing this year. And I said, you know, the joy that we feel over a small thing like that being reversed, imagine how much greater our joy is at getting the news that our condemnation has been reversed and actually we've been forgiven. We're not, going, we, we're not going to be punished eternally. We're going to dwell with God in eternity. Imagine the joy of getting that reprieve of that news. That's the joy that's at the heart of our message as Christians. So those are some aspects of the message that St. John is giving. But what is the message? What's, what's at the heart of the message that he wants us to receive? Well, it's in verse 5. This, then, is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that what? That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If someone asked you to encapsulate the heart of the gospel, if someone asked you, sum up Christianity for me in a single sentence, what's at the heart of the message that Christianity is trying to send to me? Would you put it this way? Would you say that the fundamental message of Christianity is that God is light and in him is no darkness at all? I think maybe a lot of us, I know I would, would find that a little bit counterintuitive. Like maybe I wouldn't necessarily put that as centrally as John does in this passage. So why does he put it so centrally? Why is it so important for us to recognize that God is light and in him is no darkness at all? In thinking about that and reflecting on that and trying to figure out what St. John is up to here, it might be good for us to reflect just for a moment on the character of light and the character of darkness. Darkness is not a thing. Light is a thing. Darkness is just the absence of light. If someone were to switch off the lights in this room all of a sudden and we were in darkness, we would say, where did the light go? There was light here a minute ago. Now it's gone. If someone were then to flip the lights back on and we were suddenly in light again, nobody would say, where did the darkness go? The darkness doesn't go anywhere because darkness is not a thing. It's just the absence of a thing. And in saying that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, one thing that St. John is trying to tell us is there is no gap in God's being. There is no absence of anything that ought to be there. There is no lack of anything that he could have. So when we think of God as being without sin, 
In a sense, that's a misleading phrase, because without is a negative term. And what we think is, okay, I have sin, and then if I were to take sin away from myself, I would be like, like God. No, it's not removing anything. Just like you don't remove darkness from a room, you introduce light into it. God is without sin because there is no absence of being in him. He is fullness of being. He is fullness. There is no lack. There is nothing that could be absent from him, and hence there can be no sin in him. Is this important for us to recognize? Is this something anyone was ever tempted to doubt? It is. And we can see it in this attitude towards the Christian life where we think of ourselves as being good Christians and therefore we, we don't do things that the rest of the world does. We don't lie, cheat, and steal and all the other things that the world does. And we think by not doing those things, that makes us really good people and God should be God should be thankful for our goodness and sort of reward us for that goodness. We've really given up a lot of things that we would rather be doing right now. So God, why can't you just um, recognize how nice people we are and reward us accordingly? That's not Christianity. That's not how it works. If I was if I were to tell you right now, I'm going to take away the cold and the darkness and the bleakness, and I'm going to give you today a summer's day. It almost actually has felt like summer days over the past couple of days, but I'm going to give you a full summer's day with light and a long day and warmth and flourishing, and you're going to feel your body respond to that. You're going to feel yourself overjoyed and happy and healthy. You're just going to be full of all this wonderful light. Would you say... Oh, what a good person I am for give, being willing to give up winter. What a, what a nice person I am for being willing to give you all my darkness, all my cold, all my death, and to receive light from you. Would you say that? Of course not. It's, not, it's, nothing, um, it's no sacrifice to give up darkness and have light in exchange. It's no sacrifice to give up sin and darkness and the winter of our, of our own um, sadness and discontent and to receive happiness and joy in exchange for that. No, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Anything you could give up for the sake of receiving that light would be a fair exchange. Not just a fair exchange, but the best deal of your life. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. We are making the sensible choice by giving up whatever we give for the sake of following God. And so what kind of consequences does that have in our lives? If we, if we take this message into our hearts, if we really accept this and believe this, how is that going to make a difference for the way that we behave and the way that we believe and the way that we act? Th that's what the rest of this epistle is about. And verse 6, I think, is the real key verse to think about. If Verse 6 says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. There's, there's an unfortunate mentality that has become almost pervasive in Christianity and particularly in evangelical Protestant Christianity that being a Christian is mainly a matter of saying the right things. I prayed this prayer... And I said these words, 
so now I'm good. I used this formula or this expression of what I believe, so now God has to accept me, and I'm safe. No, Christianity is not a matter of saying the right things. We can say that we have fellowship with God. St. John says that. We can say that. But is it true? We know it's true or not by whether we walk in the light or not. If we walk in the light of that truth, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, and our belief is genuine, yes, it saves us. Absolutely. No question about it. We do not believe in salvation by works. We believe in salvation by faith. But faith is more than saying the right words. It's more than saying the particular words of this prayer. It is an actual act of putting our trust in God. And that act is going to have real consequences for the way that we walk, for the way that we live our lives. We're going to be walking in the truth and not in darkness if our belief is sincere. And one thing that means is that the genuine Christian life is a constant exercise in repentance. If we say that we have no sin, the truth is not in us. Walking in the light means being able to see the parts of ourselves that fall short of God's perfect standard of righteousness. Sometimes you'll put on an article of clothing and say, well, this shirt looks clean. I'll wear this shirt today. And then you get out into the light and you realize, oh, this actually has a rather unsightly spot on it. I thought this was a clean shirt. It actually, it actually isn't. Walking in the light means that those defects and those stains in us are constantly exposed to us. Even our best deeds, even our most seemingly righteous acts, when we look at them in the light, we realize, you know, I guess, I, yeah, I sort of did the right thing, but did I really have the right motivations? Did I really feel the way I should have felt about it when I was doing it? We see that sin is bound up even in our best deeds. And so the Christian life is one of perpetual repentance until we are brought to perfection by God's grace, which won't happen in this life, not perfectly. Perfect sanctification will not be something we receive in this life, but it will be something we receive in glory. And so we must press on towards that light. We must walk in the light, walk in sincerity and truth, aware of our sins, confessing those sins to God, that we might be brought unto the life eternal that is promised for those who follow him with sincerity. Amen. 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 The offertory hymn is...